Gonville and Keys College, Cambridge, late autumn 2019. 40 years after it welcomed women through its doors, we're meeting Kean's past and present to talk about some of the most important issues facing women today. There's the gate of, is it the gate of honour? The one that you only pass through when you graduate, you can only go through once. Oh, I think that's right, yes. That's the one we have our like matriculation photo in front of when you first joined the college. The work that these two Keys women do is strongly linked to climate change. The areas they work in, agriculture and development, are both bound up with the issues of sustainability and global warming. As you'll hear in this episode, both women are passionate about making a difference. Do you remember what number you were? I, I, can rem- I can't remember the number, I can remember the room, I can point to the door. My name is Jo Moyer, I am currently Deputy Director for Health and Human Development in the Department for International Development, so I'm a senior civil servant and I was at Keys in the early 90s. Yes, here we go. It was this room here. It looks exactly the same. (laughs) My name is Harriet Bartlett and I'm a PhD student at the University of Cambridge in zoology and veterinary medicine and I study sustainable livestock production. Even though they attended the college at different times, they had lots of memories in common. So I was really nervous. No one in my family had been to Cambridge before. I'd been here for open days and sort of for day trips when I was little punting. So it was a momentous occasion. My family were very proud. I come from a a bit of a line of of Keyans. So when I arrived, it wasn't the first time I'd ever been to Keys, but it did feel like quite a momentous occasion. I remember being told off for going on grass. Were you ever told off for going on grass? I can't remember being told off. After their brief walk and reminisce, Harriet and Joe settled into a room in the heart of the college to find out about each other, their work, and the common issues they face. The pace really hits you when you arrive at Cambridge. You know, you're both getting used to the volume of the work and the fact that having been maybe one of the cleverer people in your school, you're now definitely not the cleverest person in Can your empathize year. With that. Yeah. But also you're getting into the sports and into the music and the social life, probably having a few crushes on people at the same time. And it's really, really, really intense. And I just remember getting home from my first term at, at college and sleeping for about a week because uh, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's really pacey. I agree, yeah. What do you remember about your first day? How did it feel? The main thing I remember was that it was lovely. They have this family system. So before you arrive, your parents, who are students in the year above you, email you and tell you what to expect, give you some advice. And they were actually there waiting for me to help me unpack my bag. That's really impressive. I think I had a college dad, but I seem to remember he was a little bit useless. Uh, (laughs) He certainly never met me or anything like that. Might have taken me out and bought me a pint, probably. I mean, I was studying engineering, so, you know, engineers are a very practical bunch. So before long, they were dismantling hi-fi systems <laughs> and uh, getting up to various jokes around college. Why did you choose veterinary medicine? I mean, I basically took one of those silly careers tests yeah. that often schools make yeah. you take. Almost everyone in my school came back with, you should be a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor yes. or a journalist. Yes. Um, and I was the only one in my year group that it came back with VET and came back with VET as the top option by quite That's some really way. interesting. Why was that, do you think? I don't know. I think I grew up in a family that loved animals. And I remember in the careers test that I expressed a want to work outdoors and not to work in an office. Yeah. So that might have been one of the driving factors. But then we had a meeting with the teacher that organised to sort of talk through the options. And 
And he said, I think you'd make a really good vet. Yeah. It was pretty late because you have to do a lot of work experience to apply for veterinary medicine. And I only had sort of a year to fit in 12 or so weeks. So I didn't really look back from there. It was a, it was a race to get there in time oh, for the applications. 12 weeks. That sounds like a real needle drop moment you know a moment when everything suddenly becomes clear and you and you recognize something in yourself so how about you where did you grow up so I went to school in Boxer it was actually a boarding school which was great in many ways it's quite sort of limiting socially I think a boarding school certainly at the time because we were sort of locked away (laughs) in this campus a bunch of girls and, um, oh, an all-girls school. It was an all-girls school. Everyone was, was very encouraging. I always did quite well academically. I really loved the sciences, and that's, I think, why I decided to go for engineering. I could never really see myself studying a pure science, but, but engineering and, and the practical side, the applied side of science, really appealed to me. So that's why I went for it. Mm-hmm. But I needed to take some time out, having been locked away in my girls' boarding school. So I headed out to Zimbabwe for the wow. um, best part of a year. To teach in a little local rural wow. what um, were you teaching uh teaching english oh. to primary school kids we had a lot of fun it was all unpaid rightly so given my <laughs> lack of teaching qualification got to uh, get a little window into life in a in a rural african community with all its its challenges and contradictions as well very eye-opening and i guess it sort of set me on this path that i've been on ever since to work in development and try and understand what it's like growing up in a country like Zimbabwe. Yeah, amazing. And particularly African countries you've worked on? I've particularly worked on African countries and I've lived in in Ethiopia and Zimbabwe Mm -hmm. uh, and worked on North Africa. But my department, the department that I work for now, DFID, we cover countries across Africa and Asia, South Asia, a bit of a footprint in Latin America as well. Interesting. Yeah. And have you travelled much then? In between my undergraduate and my PhD, I was lucky enough to work in Australia. So I went there to work on a project, a research project at CSIRO on how we can make the red meat industry carbon neutral. Oh, interesting. Yes, it was very exciting. And actually the proposal came from industry, which makes it even more exciting. And they've said they want to do it. So there's people working on it now. And what's the answer? Um, so there's large scale <laughs> reforestation is okay. a big part yes. uh, yeah. to sort of counteract all the emissions that come. But productivity increases are important. And is that actually having the cattle in the forests? No. Because cattle, aren't, aren't they forest creatures by nature? I don't know if they're forest creatures, but there are some systems. Yeah. They call them silver partial okay. systems where you do have cattle amongst the trees. But typically, the more sort of popular approach, at least with the producers, was to have some of their land under forest okay. and separate yes. areas for grazing. Yeah. But yes, there's, a, there's definitely a part of it. So something that we spend quite a lot of time thinking about in my team is food systems yeah. and how we can nudge food systems in the right direction. You know this way better than me, but at the moment, our food systems are kind of structurally set up in a way that isn't winning for the environment or the climate or people so we have this sort of triple loss at the moment so what we talk a lot about in the team is thinking about how you get the triple win how do you get a food system that delivers nutritious food for people but also is not too bad on carbon emissions or carbon neutral and is good for the environment so I'm really interested in your PhD from that perspective because it it looks like that's what you're that's what you're looking for it's the triple win exactly exactly so I'm interested in trying to identify systems 
that are best for people, for the environment, but also for the animals that we farm. Yeah. So I work particularly on livestock sustainability. And there's this kind of perception that either livestock systems are good for the environment. So they have yeah. low greenhouse gas footprints, they have low land use footprints, low biodiversity impact, or they have high welfare and low antibiotic use. Yeah. There's a perception that we can't win, we can't have both. But it hasn't actually been well tested in a sort of reliable, repeatable, um, consistent way across a really broad range of systems. So at the moment, I'm working on pigs and I'm working on pigs in the UK and Brazil. So pork is now the most eaten meat in the world. It's 37% of all the meat that we eat and it's growing at an extraordinary rate. That's that's interesting, but presumably not across the Middle East and um, parts of Africa. (laughs) I mean, I think it is growing there. It is growing. Is it really? Um, In India, pork consumption is definitely increasing as well. But most pigs and most pork consumption is in China. So over yeah. half the world's okay. pigs, yeah. and they're actually a net importer on top of that. Oh, my word. Um, yeah. But so I'm going to a really broad range of systems, and I'm doing welfare assessments so I can quantify the welfare yeah. of the pigs. I'm measuring their greenhouse gas footprints, their land use footprints, and their antibiotic use and resistance to basically yeah. see if we can have systems that are good for all those things, or there's like an inevitable trade-off, and a yeah. decision has to be made, basically. Yeah. Are you aware that research of that nature is going on across the piece because there are there are so many foods at the moment like pork like beef which are really quite problematic for us to be consuming in large quantities because of the environmental and the climate impacts but are we doing enough research to work out what those we would call them best buys are yeah Uh, I mean I would say no but I'm probably a bit biased I think there should be much more research in this area of course (laughs) um but it's it's a challenging area to research because it's so interdisciplinary So the only way that I can really do it is because at Cambridge, the VET course is quite unusual. It's six years rather than five. And in your third year, you take a different subject. So I took zoology and I studied environmental impacts and conservation. Um, But it's actually quite unusual, I guess, to have that crossover, to have that crossover between veterinary medicine, health and welfare and environmental impacts. Yes. So I haven't met anyone that's studying all of these things in the same system and I wish there were lots more people doing it. Yeah, it's so true. We come up against that problem also in the in the way that we we try and have conversation with some of our partner governments about food systems because you're never quite sure which ministry you should be talking to. Is it the Ministry of Finance who set the regulatory environment and the you know the taxes and the tariffs? Or is it the Ministry of Agriculture? Or, or is it the Ministry of Environment or the Ministry of Health? I think food systems and nutrition, it's such a tricky area to to wrap your arms around and really get a result I will say it's quite interesting to see moves in the UK actually you might be aware that the government has committed to pull together a UK food strategy which I think is the first time we've ever really looked at the issue from an interdisciplinary perspective Um, but really exciting and actually really looking quite seriously at the environmental and climate change impacts of our food systems and how we can push things in the right direction from from, just from a domestic perspective yeah and I think it's really important that we are sort of trying to consider these things holistically as well because if we sort of just go down the path of right we want to minimize greenhouse gas emissions then actually we might go backwards in terms of welfare or land use or other things and we might be missing out on these win-wins these opportunities to to synergize these things How does climate change uh, influence and affect your work? It's a really good question, and it affects everything that we're we're trying to do as a development department. There's the emissions side, where we have teams of negotiators. It's actually a cross-government team who um, go regularly to the climate negotiations to look at Mm -hmm. how we reach global agreements on emissions and emissions trading and that full set of issues around mitigation. 
But from a development perspective, I think it's one of the biggest development challenges of our time. You know, climate change is having major impacts on some of the poorest communities in the world. In fact, the communities affected most are vulnerable. The ones that have emitted least. The ones that have the least capacity to cope with the changes. So, for instance, when I I was in Ethiopia for a couple of years, Ethiopia is one of those countries that has always suffered from droughts, successive droughts. But those droughts have become more frequent and more severe over the last 20 years. It's very, very marked. And so they find themselves facing a severe drought probably every two or three years. And while I was there in 2016 through to 2017, they had a severe drought on the back of a severe drought the previous year. And there were communities, particularly in the southeast of the country, in Somaliland, who had not had a sustainable harvest for a couple of years in a row. They were really, really facing pressures. And the water table had been severely depleted as well. So then you have these groups of people who are migrating around very large areas. And the question is, how do you actually get services to them? How do you ensure that they have a water supply? How do you ensure that their kids are able to attend the local school because they they were registered at one school and then they've got to travel to get to another one? How do you ensure that they have a food supply because often they've had to leave an area where they were trying to have a harvest and they've, they've migrated somewhere else. You know, there's they have very little capacity to buy food. How do you ensure that you don't end yeah. up with lots of malnourished kids on your hands? It's it's really, really problematic. So yeah, climate change is having a big impact. On... And is this all on a large scale, these impacts you're talking about? So I think that year we had about 18 million people affected wow. by drought in Ethiopia out of a country with a population of 100 million. So yes, it's a wow. significant proportion of the population. I mean, I will say Ethiopia is an incredible country in the way they've set up a, a national social protection system. Basically, it's, it's like a welfare system. It's not at all like the UK welfare system. <laughs> it's a very, very basic safety net. So if you are a poor person in Ethiopia and you are registered with their national safety net system, you will have a a food transfer or a money transfer when times are hard from the government. And it's a program which donors can put money into, but also the government funds as well. And that's a really important way for people to get through a drought. And there's been lots of research as to whether that sort of social protection system helps people get through droughts. And the answer is, well, it does. You just give people a little bit of resource and they can get through the tough times, which is is amazing. We should try and invest more in that around the world. What motivated you to work with communities like this? So it started, I think, when I spent a year in Zimbabwe just before university and living in a poor rural community with... You know, kids who would come to school with no shoes on. And in my class of eight-year-olds, there might be a 15-year-old who'd repeated the year several times because his parents couldn't afford for him to stay at the school for too long. It brings home the challenges of what what it means to grow up in a poor community. And I, I just knew that I wanted to try and work on that and try and solve that that problem. You know, we engineers, were all problem solvers. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to try and contribute and uh, to try and solve some of these development problems that we we see. And and I think we're we're very privileged in the UK. We have a very internationalist outlook, actually, in the UK. I know it may not feel like that, given all the uncertainty <laughs> with, with Brexit and some of the opinions that, that we see. But actually, we have a long history of being a very outward-looking country. Yeah. And the British taxpayer is incredibly generous. We 
commit 0.7% of our GNI to aid. And that's something which has been upheld by successive governments, both Labour and Conservative. I know it's also challenged, but uh, it has been upheld. So we, you know, we have a large aid budget and we spend it well for the most part. And it has an amazing impact around the world. Was there anybody at Keys who particularly inspired you? Yeah, so there was, there was. Um, the late Professor Carpenter supervised me in neurophysiology. And we were so lucky because he actually wrote the textbook on neurophysiology. Wow. Um, so Keys, and particularly I know in medicine, we're very privileged here to have a lot of amazing fellows that have done quite pivotal research um, in medicine. Yeah. Um, and the first essay we were set by him was like none of the other essays I've ever been set. It was... Um, what does the brain do? When actually <laughs> all other essays I'd ever been set here at Keys were pretty specific, factual, yes. right and wrong answer kind of essays. I loved it. I loved it. I loved the challenge of having to think really broadly about these things. And he actually gave me a little prize. He said he enjoyed oh. my essay so much. And he gave me a little Gomble and Keys calculator that I have on my desk still to this day. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. That's a, that's a great story. My director of studies, Dr. Tom Bly, was a larger, is, I'm, is still, I'm sure, a larger than life figure. Dr. Bly worked on the space shuttle program wow. and uh, always claims that he invented Velcro. Now, none of us were ever <laughs> quite sure if this actually was the case, but I can well imagine, given the kind of character that he is, that that, that was a true story. Um, but something he said has always stuck with me I remember being a bit shocked when I first heard it he said education is what's left when you've forgotten everything else that you've been taught I think for me that rings true because frankly I cannot remember anything about my degree now I couldn't (laughs) I couldn't tell you how to do those complicated mathematical problems anymore but I do remember learning how to collaborate and how to communicate and how to keep going to try and solve a problem you know when it when it just seems too difficult you just keep pushing and pushing and maybe you ask for some help from somebody else and eventually you get there so that there's something about that quote of his I think which which rings true for me so do do you have a mentor at the moment you're on this program aren't you so tell me about that so I'm on I'm part of the Homeward Bound program which is a leadership program for women in STEM so science technology engineering maths and medicine And the aim of the program is over a decade to train a thousand women from across the world to contribute to solving the massive issue of of climate change. And I'm one of 95 women. There's a handful of us from the UK that are going uh, to Antarctica at the end of this month. Wow. Yeah. That sounds amazing. It is. It is. So it's it's a year long program and it culminates with this expedition to Antarctica. Um, And in this program, I've had loads of mentors. I've had lots of amazing role models. I'm working with women all the time that have done TED Talks and have won these amazing awards. And it's basically training us to be able to come back to our communities and catalyze this change and try and get people to act more on climate change and make the decisions that need to be made. I think that kind of program, it can be so instrumental actually in overcoming just some of the mental barriers that we might set for ourselves. Are you being challenged to see beyond your own expectations of of what you might achieve definitely and a big focus is on sort of collaborative leadership and you can't do it on your own but if we have a large group of same-minded women that have a similar goal if we work together then again these synergies can kind of occur and and much more can be achieved 
So we're taught to have a sort of different perspective on leadership and stop being so sort of competitive yeah. in the way we work and much more collaborative. Yeah. So I'm interested in um, what it feels like to be a woman looking to make progress in in pig farming. It's not known yeah. for being <laughs> an industry that that has lots of women working in it. How does it feel? Definitely. I mean, I think agriculture in general yeah. is very male dominated. I think there's definitely times I feel like there's a bit more pressure for me to prove myself. But mostly I work almost exclusively with men. Well, I've never been on a pig farm and interviewed a woman that's been the manager and my collaborators in research, uh, my supervisors are all men. So I guess I'm always underestimated when I go on farms. Um, and a big thing is that I often have to work with potentially quite dangerous animals. So, so breeding pigs, particularly the sows, the females, they can often be 300 kilos or more. And most farmers are worried about me getting in with them, which I guess you, you should be worried about anyone getting in with them. But I mean, I can handle myself. I'm pretty experienced with it. It's a lot of, about confidence. You need to have a lot of confidence with animals with a strong sort of social hierarchy. But I always get sort of surprised looks from farmers when I can pick up something really heavy and move the pigs out of the way and they listen to me. There's always a, a little step back. They look and do a bit of a double take, which is always nice, actually. It's quite nice to to break that yeah, glass yeah. ceiling. <laughs> and, and what about academia itself? Does it feel like it's still a very male-dominated space in your sectors? Definitely at the high levels. Yeah. Um, in terms of sort of undergraduates and postgraduates, we're getting closer to, to equality in numbers of people studying these subjects. And in, in agriculture, but also in sort of conservation and broadly in veterinary medicine and zoology, there are big problems with diversity. It's very, very sort of male-dominated. The civil services come quite a long way actually Um, it feels different even to when I started and I think in fact in my department more than half the senior civil servants are women wow so so we're not doing badly I think there are still structural problems you know whether it's it's almost like a self-imposed limitation that we have Mm. as women sometimes you know I'm I'm a working mum and I know I've I've definitely limited myself at times because I felt I could not both be a working mum and mm. have a really significant career. But I think that you, you just need to find ways through. So another thing the civil service is really good at, actually, is providing options for flexible working. So the ability mm. to work remotely or to work part time or to job share. I've done all those things. That can make a big difference, actually, because as long as you're delivering your work and you're, you're managing your team well, why shouldn't you, you know, make use of those flexible options? It's wonderful to hear that that's, that's working. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I'm aware of things that are changing and improving, but I still do feel like there is a bit of a choice in academia between having a family and your career. Um, And I think people are trying to change that. And there's definitely more and more schemes in place. But I think there's kind of a perception, assumption and a judgment that people make of you. I know I make of myself probably as well, that makes it really challenging to have a family and to have that that career. Yeah, it's something I struggle with. I'm not thinking about a family yet. You know, you want to have the option. Yeah. Um, and I mean, at the age I am and at the stage I am in my career, I shouldn't be worrying about these kind of things. I shouldn't have to worry about these kind of things. And I don't think my male counterparts are worrying about these things. But it is something that is a burden yeah. that I have to think about all my next steps. What do I want to be? If I'm going into a postdoctoral role, then there are big problems there with maternity leave, um, for example. Mm. 
which needs to change. That definitely needs to change, doesn't it? I mean, I would just go for it and see where you end up. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And choose the right partner. Yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) I think that that's the the Sheryl Sandberg school of uh, of thought. But if you if you end up with a life partner who where you're able to be mutually supportive and there's a shared understanding about what it means to raise a family together, it makes a massive difference. And sometimes it's difficult to to have those kinds of conversations before you leap in to a relationship, isn't it? Okay. Advice taken. Very (laughs) important. So one thing that strikes me about having this conversation is how important I think women are and leadership in particular for women is in the climate change issue. So women are really underrepresented in leadership and decision making roles. There's so many challenges with climate change now. There's there's scary predictions of the number of people that will be pushed below the poverty line, the number of species mm-hmm. that will go extinct. And we need our best minds looking at the solutions and trying to find the solutions. And if we don't have equality and we don't have women at the table making these decisions and putting forward these ideas, then we've only got half of our best minds. So we really need that equality. We need women to be able to be at that table making those decisions for a sustainable future. I absolutely agree with you. And when you look at the statistics, it it is women who often bear the brunt of some of these big climate challenges For instance, we know that malnutrition rates in children around the world are going up, not down. Mm. And actually, it's it's the mums, of course, who are looking after those kids. And nutrition is actually a a major factor in whether women get through childbirth safely as well. Mm. There are really significant reasons, I think, why women need to be, be at the table in the climate debate population issues as well you know we haven't talked about sexual and reproductive health and rights yeah. but that is such a significant thing for women to be able to have a choice about when and how they plan their families that will have a massive impact on fertility rates across the world and yeah. the population challenge that we're currently facing yeah. let's get more women to the table exactly yeah i think there is a a serious global challenge at the moment on women's rights broadly and particularly women's sexual health and reproductive rights we've seen the position that america has been taking and and you know they do always tend to take a much more retrograde position than the uk and other european countries but there does seem to be a coalition building which is is anti-women's rights there's no other way of putting it and i think it's up to us as countries and organizations that really do support women's rights now it's great that there is a growing developing country voice around these issues as well it's not it's not just the scandinavians (laughs) (laughs) but we you know we really need that that voice to be out there there was a big un debate on universal health coverage and within the political declaration that went alongside that debate there was agreement that women's sexual and reproductive health and rights was at the centre of universal health coverage. Now, that may sound like a, a small thing. Let me try and translate. It basically means that a health service should offer family planning services, should offer safe abortion as part of a package of care to women. And that's like a core thing for a health yeah. service to offer. And I just think that that is so important if women are actually going to reach their potential in life yes. and live safe and healthy lives, that's that's really at the heart of it all. Where do you see yourself in 20 years' time? The short answer is I have no idea. I don't know. But 
I'd like to sort of look back on my life and be happy that I feel that I've contributed, even if it's in a sort of tiny way, but contributed to a sort of more sustainable future in terms of the environment, people and and the animals we farm. And how about you? So I think one of the problems that I would really like to contribute to solving is the join up between humanitarian efforts so that's like immediate relief efforts and development Uh, so we know that communities around the world are going to face more and more and more of these climatic events floods droughts which which cause them huge problems and often we put a sticking plaster on it the international community gives them immediate relief and it doesn't solve the problem we have to help communities adapt And that's about good development. And that's about working with governments and local organisations and local governments and partnering with them to put put systems in place, health, education services, water services that can flex as these longer term crises happen. So I really want to contribute to that. Thank you to Joe Moyer and Harriet Bartlett. In the next episode of For the Love of Learning, we'll meet two more Keans. They'll discuss the women-shaped whole in our economy. Last year, the college held a garden party, one of the things they did to celebrate 40 years of women at Keys. Some of the women who came shared their memories of their time at the college with us. Enormous fun, amazing opportunities, amazing people. My name is Varian Exelby. I was here from 1991 to 94 and I studied history. And I'm Ruma Mandal and I was here from 1990 to 1993 and I did law. This is unrecognisable to me. I think I sort of remember it from Bops in Freshers' Week. It was always dark, sweaty and smelly. I don't (laughs) recognise this. This is very modern and light and it's surreal. I think I can genuinely say I loved every day of being here. I loved it too, yeah. I just remember always being busy but really happy the terms went too quickly. Yeah, I loved every single minute of my time here.